Barb, as you have a wonderful uh, morning in Children's Church. They're finishing a series on emotions and how God's handles, responds, and, and, and how we have our emotions in all of it. So it's really a, an interesting and uh, exciting series that they're on, and they're, uh, they're learning a ton about God's Word downstairs, and I love that we can invest in children. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to start a, uh, a new series. We finished last week uh, a four-week series on life apps, some practical applications that we can use in our life and that we have to actually use them. So here's a kind of a, a next step, I guess you could say. We're going to start a series called Stand. Stand. For the rest of August, we're going to spend five weeks studying this idea of stand. Stories of courage. Stories of courage. How many of you want to be described as a person that has courage? Or how many of you want to be like the lion from the Wizard of Oz who's lost their courage? Anybody? I got the right one, right? The lion had no courage. Everyone's kind of looking at me like I don't know what I'm talking about. and I'm getting a little nervous. Now I have no courage. Oh boy. Service is over. Thanks for coming this morning. Stories of courage. We want to Russell through this this morning. Anybody remember the first time you were challenged to compromise something that you believed in? Nobody's ever been challenged to compromise something they believed in? You know that, that time when you're sitting in school and you're committed to not cheat, but you want to look over the shoulder of the person who's writing the test in front of you because you don't know the answer? No, no one's ever done that. What about the time you've been challenged to stand or to compromise something that you believed in? Did you have the courage to stand out or were you afraid? Or did you just give in? What my hope is over this series is that you'll see that in this life, when we serve God, in this life as a Christian, following the the teachings of Jesus, following the Word of God, the truth, that we're challenged to walk counterculturally, and as we walk counterculturally, our culture will try to force us to compromise. But we need to have courage to stand. In the New Testament, Paul writes, I don't even know how many times, 12-ish times I believe, the word stand firm to the churches in his epistles. And he's challenging over and over and over again the church and Christians, individuals, to stand firm in the faith. Why? Because there's so much pressure from the culture to compromise. So, we're going to talk about how we stand. And we're going to look at stories of courage. And over the next five weeks, we're going to look at how we can live A courageous life in a culture that is continually trying to derail us. That's continually trying to get us to compromise. I don't know about you, but I've personally experienced this. That there are a number of people, and some of them are close friends. Some of them are acquaintances. But they're always trying to get me to do something that will compromise a little bit about what I believe in so that they can have this little bit of opportunity to say, see, that's why I don't do what you do. If you've ever experienced that, it's a challenging spot to stand in. 
It's challenging when you're first a Christian. It's challenging when you've been a Christian for a number of years. But we have to figure out and find a way to stand, to have that courage. And what we're going to do over the next five weeks is look into the book of Daniel. Into the Old Testament, one of these uh, prophecy books, it's so powerful that we see stories of courage. In fact, we could almost say that the time period in which Daniel is, is, is living could be similar to the culture in which we're living in right now. That it's a lot of compromise. I mean, in this particular moment in time, the uh, Babylon has begun to take over uh, Judea. And they're trying to, they're beginning this, this process of, of being held captive. And we want to look at how we can stand and the stories of courage from the book of Daniel. In fact, if we stand for the right things at the right time and in the right way, it could change the course of our life and it could actually change the culture in which we live in. But, but if we compromise and do the wrong things, at the wrong times, for the wrong reasons, it could cost us so much more. So that's our challenge. How do we stand? And we're going to see it in the book of Daniel, the stories of courage from the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bible, or if you have your Bible on your phone, or if you have uh, the Bible just in front of you, if you want to turn to the book of Daniel, we're going to start, and we're going to study chapter 1 this morning, and we're going to look at this particular chapter and we're going to begin to understand a little bit about what it means to stand out for God. Here's a little history as you're turning there. Daniel lived approximately 400 years after David and about 600 years before Jesus. So right kind of in this middle period, almost. You have King David and about 400 years later you have Daniel and then 600 years you're going to have Jesus. And the book covers about a 75 year period, give or take. From about 605 BC to about 530 BC. We find that in the beginning of this book, Daniel is just a teenager. Maybe somewhere between the ages of 14 and 15. But when the book closes, he's closing in on that 90 years old. And over the course of his life, we see that Daniel goes from a prisoner to serving as a trusted counselor of Babylon. It's an interesting story. It's an interesting journey. And Daniel is caught here in the middle of a world system and a culture that has forgotten God, similar to ours. God repeatedly sent prophets to warn the people of Israel, but they continued to rebel and live in sin. And then God allowed the superpower of the day, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and his armies to attack Jerusalem and to take over the city. And this is the picture that we have at the start of Daniel chapter 1. That, that there, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has come into Jerusalem and he's taken over the city and he's destroyed things. And God has, has given to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you could say it this way, God has given to Nebuchadnezzar gifts. It's not gifts, but stuff that he's stolen, he's taken, and he's bringing it back into Babylon. And it starts by saying this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, meaning that he took it over. He conquered it. 
And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hands, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So here's this takeover. Here's this, he's, he's capturing and he's, he's taking back into the land of Babylonia. And he's trying to take the stuff and he's taking the king and stuff from the temple. And then the king ordered Aspenath, chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without physical defect, handsome, showing an aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the languages, the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. So this is the plan of Nebuchadnezzar. He takes over the city. He captures the king. He gets all this treasure. He brings it back to Babylon. And he begins to uh, convert uh, Israelites. He begins to convert these people into being a part of the king's service. But he's handpicking certain people. Among these were some uh, from Judea. Daniel, Hananiah, Michel, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Michel, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine. And he asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God has caused the official, sorry, now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid, I am afraid of my Lord. Who's my Lord? That would be Nebuchadnezzar. The king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? Then the king, the king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed. To this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days. They looked healthier and better nourished. Than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food. And the wine they were to drink. And gave them vegetables. Instead. These four young men. To these four young men. God gave knowledge and understanding. Of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds, which we'll see later on in the uh, chapters preceding. Sorry, following. At the end of time, 
set by the king at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in the chief officials presented them to Nebuchadnezzar the king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel Hananiah Mishael and Azariah so they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them he found them 10 times Ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So here in chapter 1, we get the opening scene, the opening understanding of this adventure and this story of courage. We see Daniel, who is committed to serving his God. Who is committed to serving the God of Israel. The Lord, Yahweh. He is committed at the age of 14, maybe 15. And he's dedicated and committed. And he's forced into this moment where he's now challenged to stand out. He's put in a spot where he's challenged to either stand out or compromise. He could give in and and live like everybody else. He could stay there and just go about and, and, and eat the food that he's supposed to eat and accept the name that he's been given and do everything that the king who is now holding him captive wants him to do, but he will not give up on his God. He is committed. He's willing to stand out. So what I want to do this morning is look at a few things. What was the king trying to do? Because I think that what the king was trying to do here is similar to what our culture is trying to do to us right here and right now in this day, the 21st century, today in 2015, even in Englehart, Northern Ontario. Listen, the king was trying to make them Babylonians. You see, the king went and and he, he said to his official... Find these men who are who are handsome and and who are who are above everyone else. I mean, he's really handpicking people who, on the outward appearance, look like they would be the best people possible for the job, because he wants to make them Babylonians. He wants to take them and he wants to get everything that they've learned out of their heads. That's probably why he's aiming at teenagers, much like we're seeing in our culture today. But he's handpicking them and he's trying to force them. He's trying to brainwash them. He's trying to get them to become Babylonians. He says this, then the king ordered Aspenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and from nobility. So these people had um, status, you could say. He's looking for specific qualities. Young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He is determined to make these young men into Babylonians. Why? Because he wants to use them to influence the other people. Now, although it's not the king, our culture is trying to make us into cultural replicates. Trying to get us 
to, to not stand out because of who God's called us to be, but just to be status quo and be a part of the culture and live in the culture and just give up on this God that we serve. Same thing that the king's trying to do to these men. Trying to make them into Babylonians. You see, the enemy is tries. The enemy tries to make you think, behave, and believe a lie. He's trying to make you think a lie. Think it's okay, you know, just to be sort of casual. It, it's, it's okay. He wants you to behave like everybody else so that, that, that everybody else will say, well, everybody else is doing it, so why don't I do it? He wants you to believe the lie. Now, I would suspect that in this training that Nebuchadnezzar was getting his officials to do to these men, probably had something to do like this, you know. You see, your God left you and I took you over. So your God is dead. Trying to get them to believe a lie. Our culture is saying, in, into our students particularly, they go to university. What do you believe? Why do you believe that? You know, we've watched a movie, God is Not Dead, where the professors trying to force an entire class to write a statement that God is dead. Believing or unbelieving. Choice to stand out or compromise for the grade. This culture is forcing us. You see, the enemy tries to make you think, behave, and believe a lie. Peter says this, that be alert and of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Looking to... And, 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 and sometimes I think we, we read this word, devour, so all of a sudden we start thinking that this enemy is, is coming around to try to like, you know, we think of a lion devouring its prey, like, I mean, it's like, gone, disappeared. I believe that when we read this, that there's part of this This is looking to devour is this, to get us to think about a lie or to behave in a different way or to believe a lie. And maybe it doesn't literally destroy you and take you and crumble you, but it actually just twists you off the path slightly. And you begin to think something that doesn't match God's word. Or you begin to behave like the culture and not stand out which God is calling you to. Or you begin to believe true-ish statements that, that sound right but are totally not what Scripture says. You see, the king's trying his best to make these young men into Babylonians. Our culture is trying their best to pull us away from serving God, to serving ourself and our culture. In fact, if we're not careful, we can wind up lowering our standards. We can't do that because you cannot be a passive Christian in our culture. You, you could, you, I guess, I guess when it says you cannot be, I guess you, you could be, but when you choose to do that, you're not living a life any different. We are in a position where I believe that God's calling us to stand out and to not be passive 
but to live our faith. Now, does that mean that you're standing on a soapbox declaring the word of God from every corner on Inglehart? Well, if that's what God's calling you to, then that. But I believe when he says, when we say not a passive Christian, that God's calling us to live our faith as real and genuine and not compromising and not giving in, that we're going to be willing to stand out. Like when someone comes to you and wants you to do something that you know you don't do because when you read God's word, God is convicting you and challenging you to walk away from that, that you say, no, I'm not going to. And they say, well, why aren't you going to? And you can be willing to say, because what I believe in, the God who I'm, whom I serve does not find that acceptable. And I don't either. That we're willing to stand out because you cannot be a passive Christian in our culture because the enemy is trying to make you think, believe and behave, behave and believe a lie. In fact, Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, the enemy, that you can stand firm, that you can take your stand. Here's one of those moments where Paul talks about it. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. That it's not against people, it's against the enemy that's lurking, that's trying to pull us away, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, put on the whole or the full armor of God so that when the day of the evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. So that you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. You can't be passive a passive Christian in our culture, you need to be willing to stand your ground. Because if you don't stand your ground, you'll begin to compromise. And as you begin to compromise, you'll begin to be shaped the way that the enemy is trying to get you to think, behave, and believe a lie. King Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do this very thing with these four boys. He was trying to get them to become Babylonians. He was trying to get them to believe a lie. He was trying to get them to behave like Babylonians. He was trying to get them to think like Babylonians. He was trying to make them Babylonians even though they weren't. So that they would reject their God and serve the Babylonian gods. So, how does the king attempt to convert the boys? Let me show you three Three things that the king does to try to convert the boys. The first one is this, that he uprooted them from their hometown. The first thing the king did when we read this story and we understand what's happening and we begin to see this play out, we see that the king uprooted these men, these boys, from their hometown. It says that in the third year of the reign of the king Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That he came in and he besieged it. He conquered it. He, he had won in this city and he began to collect what was now his. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, meaning Nebuchadnezzar's hands. 
along with some of the articles from the temple of God, including the people. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia. That he uprooted these men when he says to his official to find them. He's taken them from their hometown, their homeland, from where they knew the comfort that they had and brought them into a place where he could then begin the process to brainwash them, to convert them, to make them into Babylonians. So the first attempt that he did was to uproot them from his home, from their hometown. To take them out of where they were, the comfort in which they were, into isolation and begin this process. After he uprooted them, he uh, intentionally indoctrinated them with Babylonian uh, literature and language and, and understanding. He wanted them to learn anew this whole new process. So he began to, to pour it on them and he began to feed them with all of this stuff. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians because he wanted them to become Babylonians. So he's teaching them language and literature. They're being forced to learn and they're being forced to be uh, thinking outside of and away from who they are. He's trying to drive out the stories of Yahweh, the stories of their God into the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. This would have been unclean food for them to eat, but he's forcing them to eat it. He wants them to, to, to forget about the law that they had, about what foods they could eat and what they could uh, consume. And he's saying, you know what? This is from the king's table. This is sacrifice to our gods in Babylonia. And you can eat it. And it's good for you. And he's forcing them. He's forcing them. And he's indoctrinating them. Then, they were trained for three years. Three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. If they qualified. He's intentionally indoctrinating them with the law of the Babylonians with the language, with the literature, with the food, with the customs, and with the gods, lowercase g, of the Babylonians. Because he wants to make them Babylonians. So he's uprooted them from their hometown. He's intentionally indoctrinated them. He's made continual statements over and over them about who... The God is now and the gods of Babylonia, Babylon, Babylon, sorry, are. And probably telling them over and over and over again that the Hebrew God is dead. Then, then he renamed them to names of Babylonian gods. He renamed them. He is really trying to make them into something that they're not. And they had the choice, at the end of the day, to stand out or to compromise. He renamed them to names of Babylonian gods. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
the chief officials gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar's, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, I want to help you see, because we probably all know these three as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if you watch Veggie Tales, you have a whole different name for them. But I want to show you what they did to try to get them to think away from God and to the gods of Babylon. Look at, look at this. You see, Daniel, Daniel was given a name and it had significant. It means God is my judge. Lord or God, Yahweh. God is my judge. Then they say, you know what? That doesn't work. So we're going to call him Belshazzar, which means Bel, a god of uh, Babylon, protect his life. No, my name means God is my judge. And they're saying, no, it doesn't. It means Bel, protect his life. This god of Babylon, protect his life. So he's changing name, which changed meaning, which twists a little bit here. Then uh, Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. And they changed it to Shadrach, which means under the command of Aku. Aku, another god of Babylon. Under the command of Aku. Then there's Michel, means who is like God. And they changed it to Meshach. And look at this little twist. Who is like Aku? The God, one of the gods in Babylon. They twist it just a little bit. Then you have Azariah means the Lord helps. And now they say Abednego means servant of Nego or Nebu, God of Babylon. So, so in this process, he's, he's changing their names to get them away from thinking about their God, their Lord, to now think about the gods of Babylon. He's on a mission to change them into something they're not. Our culture, church, is on a mission to change us into something that we're not. And if we're not willing to stand out, then we will wind up compromising and just give in to the culture when God is calling us to something far greater, something far more. So in this story, Daniel chapter 1, we see that these boys choose to stand out, to stand out for God. How did they stand out for God? What does that look like? And I think that these things can apply to us. So here's what they did. These, these four, four boys, teenagers. Remember that, teenagers. How did they choose to stand out for God? The first thing is this. They didn't fight the name change. Now I'm going to explain that in just a second. Why? But you see here, they don't fight the name change. They're in the courts. They don't fight the name change. They said, you're going to be now known as Belshazzar. You're going to be now known as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They don't fight the name change. Why don't they fight the name change? I'll tell you why. 
Because they knew that the name was an outward label. They knew who they were and whose they were. Let me, let me just rephrase this again. They knew that the name that they were given was just an outward label. That it meant nothing of who God had made them to be. That they knew that it was just an outward label. That they're going to call me this, but I know that I'm Daniel. It's an outward label that they're going to use on me, but they're not going to change my heart. They're not going to change who I am and who God has made me to be because they knew who they were. They knew, Daniel knew that he was God's. He knew, he knew the God of his forefathers. He knew the God of Israel. And he knew about the prophecies. He knew who he was. They knew, these men knew who they were. They knew that they were a child of God, that they were chosen, created by God. And they knew whose they were. They knew that they belonged to God. This is a powerful line for us to catch. That, that we'll be labeled with outward labels, and that's okay, but as long as we know who we are, that we are who we are and whose we are. I love the line. See, they knew who they were and whose they were. That's why they didn't fight the name change. That's why it didn't matter to them that they were trying to call them uh, names that represented their gods because they knew that they, in fact, were serving God. And they knew that they belonged to Him. They knew who they were and whose they were. Not only did they didn't fight the name change, they didn't defend their names because they knew who they were. They didn't have to defend their name because they knew that God was in control. They didn't have to defend their name. But what they did, the one thing that they did to stand out was this, that they took a stand when God's name was defamed. They chose to take a stand when God's name was defamed. What do I mean by that? Well, when the official brought in the food, they knew that they were not to eat and they took a stand. They took a stand, not on an outward label, but on a personal conviction, on a personal challenge, on a personal standard that they found in the truth of the word and they stood firm on it. See, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He chose in advance that he was going to stand firm. And here when he was put in the place to stand firm, he chose and lived it out. He didn't just say it, he walked it. He chose to stand firm. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. He didn't just just choose not to eat it. He chose to actually tell them why he wouldn't do it. Ah, that's awesome. He took a stand. He took a stand. He told them why he was not going to defile himself. I can't eat that food, so let me do this. 
Let me eat only vegetables and water. And God, my God, will supply everything that I need. And he was found to be what? Better nourished than the other ones. To stand for God means taking a firm stand against culture. For us to choose to stand for God means taking a firm stand against culture. It's easy for us to say it. But when we stand in the midst of it, will we actually make that firm stand? Or will we compromise? Will we actually have the courage to stand? Or will we just compromise? I wonder if we would choose to compromise because we're concerned about us and how I'm going to be viewed or looked at. Where when we choose to stand for God, we're making a firm stand against culture and we're saying, I don't care the backlash that I get because I know who I am and I know whose I am and I know that God goes before me. Peter writes this. Resist him. Resist who? Well, this is right before, right after, sorry, he says, the, the enemy is like a lion, prowling, like a prowling lion seeking to devour. He says, resist him. Resist the enemy. Resist the enemy. Standing firm in the faith. Resist the enemy and stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Doesn't that just make you feel a, a little bit better? How many of you feel isolated when you're going through suffering? When you're being attacked? I'm all by myself. No, you're not. Because the family of believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. But he continues on to say, and the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ Jesus. Now you know whose you are. Glory in Christ Jesus. After you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. It may be tough for a little bit but God will make you strong he'll make you firm and steadfast to take a stand for God means taking a firm stand against culture and when you make that firm stand against culture God will honor you for standing out he will he did it to Daniel God will honor you for standing out. When you're faced with a situation to compromise or to stand out, when you stand out, although you may take some hits, although you may take some uh, laughter and humiliation, that God will strengthen you and that God will honor you for standing out. Look at what happens to Daniel. Daniel has just finished saying, can you, like... Like, I can't defile myself. I, need, I can't eat this stuff. I need to eat something else. 
And it says, when he decided to stand out at that, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Note here, Godhead. Why? Because Daniel stood out. God honored his standing out by, by causing the official to show him favor and compassion. And he gave him the vegetables and the water. And then God made him stand firm. God gave him strength. And that God nourished him so that he was more nourished than the other however many that ate the food from the table and drank the wine. But it doesn't end there. God honors him later on in chapter 1 when it says, At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service. So this is after they've been uh, indoctrinated for three years. After they had been learned all, they're learning all of this stuff. The king brings them in. The chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar and he presents these boys to them and he lays them all, stands them all out in front and they're all in a line and this is what happened. The king talked with them. Who? The four boys. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. God honored them for standing out. They didn't compromise. They stood out. They knew who they were and whose they were. And God honored them. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better. Ten times better. Why? Because they were speaking truth. Then all the magicians and the enchanters in his whole kingdom, God will honor you for standing out. And Daniel remained there until the first year came serious. Stand out. Stand. Stories of courage. The challenge, I guess, is this. We hear this story of Daniel and all of us probably say something like this. He was a superhero. No, he was a teenager. He was a teenager. If you have teenagers at home, he was just a teenager. Just a teen. Yet he was willing to stand out because he knew who he was and whose he was. He knew that God was for him and not against him. He knew that God, that God, his God, was far better than what the culture around him was saying. He knew that his God was worth standing out for. So I guess the challenge is this. How will you stand out against culture that's trying to convert you or derail you? That applies to us who are older. Not just to the teenagers. Because we face the same challenge in the culture we live. In our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, our peer groups. The world calls you to blend in. Daniel and his friends could have blended in with the rest of the young Israelites. But if they had done so, nothing historic would have happened. God can and will use you like Daniel but only if you choose to take a stand and stand out from the rest of the world. Have courage. 
Those who have courage inspire others. I want to read you this story. It's pretty powerful. Now I've got to find it. The story of Hindus who were converted to Christianity. In a remote village in, in India, Hindus who were converted to Christianity faced death threats from, uh, from uh, oppression. They must stand firmly to live for Christ, yet they secretly met and were hunted. In one village, several Christians were taken by force. There were these men who were frantic to see their mother healed. They ordered them to heal this woman of a polio-like illness. And the leaders of the Christians stated... Since their captives had weapons, they, that they intended to hurt them. If they failed, they said, We're not afraid to suffer and die for our belief. Even if the Lord chooses not to heal this woman. But we'll pray for her. So they began to pray that God would show His love and healing power even to those who mistakenly believed in Hindu gods. And as they prayed, the leader felt his heat, felt heat, sorry, in his hands. That the presence of Lord the presence of the Lord was there. And after the prayer, and it wasn't long, the woman stood to her feet and was healed. And during the prayer, a Hindu god toppled off the shelf. One of those little icons and was irreparably damaged and in that moment nine new converts nine Hindus found salvation in Christ because someone decided to stand out Someone decided not to compromise. You know what? Even if I face death, I know that my God is worth it all. I know whose I am, and I know who I am. And I'm going to choose to stand out. Why spend your life trying to fit in when you were born to stand out? Wouldn't you rather be remembered for standing out than forgotten for blending in? I close with this. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that on the day... Of e- on the on that, so that when the day of evil sorry comes, you may be able to stand your ground 
and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm and stand out. Jared, would you and the worship team come? And let's just pray. Father, this morning, Lord, I thank you for this book, this truth that speaks life to us. And God, I thank you for this story of Daniel. And Lord, I know that as I read this story, sometimes I think, well, Daniel is just a superhero. But God, you remind me over and over again that it's not superheroes that you used. It's ordinary people like me. And like every one of us in this room. So God, I pray that in our lives we would be like Daniel and like Hananiah and Michelle and Azariah. And that we would stand out for you. That God, when the the pressure of culture is pushing us to compromise, Lord, that we would stand out for you. God, that we would uh, not be comfortable with the norm. That we would not blend into the culture. But God, that we would stand out. Lord, that we would choose to stand out. So Father, I pray as we take this this morning and we prepare our hearts for the upcoming weeks. Lord, that you would challenge us to stand. Lord, that you would challenge us and give us the courage to stand out, to stand up stand against, to stand with, and to stand for. So Father, thank you for this morning. God, help us this week. Help us this week to stand out for you in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, why don't you stand with